This is Coda Radio, episode 252, for April 14th, 2017. Dakota Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show taking a pragmatic look at the art and science of software development and related technologies. This episode's brought to you by our two excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean and Scale Your Code. You'll hear more about those fine sponsors as this here program goes on. My name is Wes, and joining us this week is our ever-so-consistent host, Michael Dominic. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, Wes, how are you? Yeah, doing great. Wonderful to join you this week. How about yourself? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing. I'm doing good. It's a, it's a nice early morning here in the Pacific Northwest, but it was a beautiful sunrise as I was stuck in traffic. So I'm sorry about that, but I'm very happy to be here. No worries. Let's do it. So what's on your mind today, Mike? Well, Wes, I'm uh, I'm a little down on gnome. A little down on gnome. Oh, tell me more. Well, I just got used to Unity. I installed gnome on my production Raytel machine. Yes, uh, about two days ago, actually. Okay. Maybe three days ago. And, my God, nothing works. Huh. It's really, I have weird uh, ghosting on corners. I'm looking at some of the stuff I'm developing. Uh, lag when I drag a window across the screen. What is Shuttleworth thinking here? This is insane. So have you been a pretty long-time Unity user, at least for your, for your more recent Linux experiences? Yeah, for recently I've been a Unity guy, um, which is to say I've been a lazy guy, right? <laughs> right. That came with Busy the jumping into Right. Jumped into Android Studio, was pretty happy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so I, I'm hoping you, a Linux guy, can tell me why should I embrace GNOME? Why is GNOME a better development environment for me? Um, you know, that's. What are you, what are you thinking? I mean, really? That, that's a good question. You know, there are actually some things. I you know, I switched away from Unity when it first came out. I had been an Ubuntu user. Um, they made that big change. I wasn't happy with it right out the gate, as a lot of people were at the time. Uh, and so I was like, well, all right, let's give GNOME. I think I was on XFCE for a while, kind of hopped around different things, and then ended up on GNOME. But at my current day job, uh, you know, I, I was in that lazy boat, too. They gave me a desktop with Ubuntu on it, came with Unity set up. Uh, they'd already configured everything for like the you know proprietary graphics and the with the Nvidia driver, and I have to say I have enjoyed Unity. I mean, I don't think I would have ever installed Unity at home or set it up, but for my like I've got three displays at work, and Unity has handled the three displays very well. And I also really appreciate that they have very good shortcuts for splitting up windows. I've used Tiling Window Managers before, but I really have enjoyed Unity. From that aspect of just being able to easily like, okay, I want, I want one big window here and then split this other side into two smaller windows. I just don't get that very well in GNOME. There are some like G-tile extensions and other things, but I think that kind of hits it right on the head. With GNOME, at least in its current state, you can't be as lazy as you can with Unity. And that's bad, I think, for a lot of developers or people who are just using it to get work done. Yeah, it, it, it's a little more configuration, right? I mean, the one thing I do find as a big upside, though, is I've been interested in the Vala programming language. 
And obviously that's from the Note Foundation. Oh, interesting. You know, that's not something I've played with. I've, I've looked at it from afar. What got you interested with it? Well, I was interested in it about a year ago. Um, actually, a couple years ago. We had a show where we briefly touched upon it before Swift came out, I think. Oh. And yes, my, my, loved, my beloved Swift. Vala is almost like C Sharp and Java had a baby. It's in a lot of ways. It's what I wish Swift would have been, but isn't. That's because I can't can't have nice things. You can't have nice things. No, of course not. No. I mean, the platform you want never is the platform that gets adopted. No, of course not. Having said that, I I've kind of not done anything serious in it because it was so tightly tied to Gnome, right? Right. I mean, it, um, it makes it hard to take it any anywhere else. I don't I don't know what that kind of story would look like for Vala even. Well, I mean, you can use GTK GUI elements, right? You can do. Um, before Qt got fancy, oh. when they were just using GTK elements, it was kind of theoretically you could do the same thing. But now Qt's got its own, you know, mobile convergence thing going on on that side of the street, right? And uh, yeah, I mean, I remember when that was just a C plus plus toolkit, right? It was like you want to write a Windows app and a Mac app that has a Linux app too. Go ahead and use GTK and Qt. Yeah, exactly. Now we're in some weird JavaScript world. We are very but, much in that world. Yeah. Don't even start me on Electron. For, for the listeners, this is a very special show. Wes and I don't know each other. And um, I don't like JavaScript anymore. I think we should go down the list of Electron apps on our machines and look at CPU usage. Ooh, now that sounds like a fun idea. And we can start with Slack because, you know, Slack and Chrome will do it. Yes, they will. Ooh. Yes. Oh, and here, I mean, I've got, I've got the uh, the new Skype app going. That's that's doing it. It's just all over the place. All right, for me, it's Chrome, Skype, Slack, in that order, and then about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven Chrome helpers. Boom, boom, right there. That's it. It's amazing. Oh, that's kind of that's kind of crazy. I think I saw an article this week talking about uh, that. Yes, Electron is the new Flash. Yep, it was in the subreddit. That's why I'm bringing it up. Um. I, I almost think it's even worse than that. It's the new Adobe Air, if you're familiar with that. Oh, wow. That's kind of a scathing review, but I think you're actually kind of right, maybe. Right, and I just shipped two Electron apps for customers, but I have to say, if they weren't so budget-constrained, I think something you know, in a GTK Vala, in a Qt, um, I mean, you could do it in a JavaScript in Qt, but that's a little different, like a Qt C++, or even a Java FX, which doesn't get enough credit would be far more performance. If you think about it, every Slack, um, every Electron app you have running on your machine is running its own instance of Chrome. And God knows how many Chrome helpers. Right. And I mean, sometimes you have enough issues just with the one Chrome. Yeah, just the one, right? I mean, what are you seeing in your work? Is this is this the wave of the future? Do you think that, um, am I right or am I just crotchety and old? You know, I've I've kind of had a I've mixed, I have mixed feelings. I'm a long time Linux desktop user, um, so I've used a lot of native apps and other things. And from one perspective, I was kind of grateful for Electron in that it it did bring some. I mean, maybe not, maybe you wouldn't call them call them high quality, certainly not efficient, but it did bring some first class apps like Slack and Telegram and Atom and some other things that people you know. That I would want that if I'm trying to evangelize for this platform, I would want to be able to tell people they can use. Um, so I, so I, I can see it from that perspective. Also, as a on the development side, I'm I'm not I'm not I don't I don't love JavaScript. 
either. I've been I've been doing some Clojure development in Clojure Script. Okay. And so the reach of JavaScript impresses me. Just the number of places it can run and the you know, I, I can see it from the maybe the small shop. I'd be very curious what you think. You know, people who haven't necessarily done, you know, like native Linux development before or just, you know, or even native desktop development. They've done web apps. Maybe they've done a mobile app. Um, and they already have all this web, this web experience. Is it, is it less to learn? Is it less overhead? Even if the final product isn't up to the same par to get an Electron app going. Because that's maybe where I would be interested in it is like, okay, well, I, I know how to build a web app. I've already got some JavaScript going. I can get this delivered, pushed out to yeah. some platforms, and maybe I'm already doing like a, a web-style app on mobile anyway. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear more about ClojureScript, but I'll, I'll answer your question first. Um, that seems to be the case. I mean, in the past, going back maybe, oh, geez, like 10 years now, if someone came to us and asked for a desktop app that needed to be cross-platform, we would have talked about Qt, um, but again, Qt back then was very different than Qt now. Right. Or possibly some Java solution, but again, Java FX didn't even exist, right? So we're talking like Java with uh, springs and struts. Ooh, yes. Yeah, we're talking some pretty gnarly NetBeam stuff is what it would have been. And you know what? That was always kind of crappy, right? That was mm-hmm. that was always kind of not good. You were like, um, well, it's cross-platform, maybe? It's cross-platform, but the JVM is going to, like, rip your CPU to pieces. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, I didn't and run this on a server? No! Yeah, and, and Q, we were always resource-constrained by, uh, you know, the two people that could do C++ in the organization, right? Yeah, exactly. That's not necessarily an easy framework to so pick up. I really got seduced, I think, by Electron in a lot of ways. Because we were... And we still are doing a ton of like web development, a ton of Docker stuff. If you see me on Twitter or YouTube, I'm droning on and on about how wonderful Docker is. And it is pretty wonderful. I just have to say I love Docker. Um, but I'm finding, at least for my usage, there is a big difference of expectation between a web app, meaning something I'm logging into via Chrome, or something I'm opening either on my, uh, you know, on my Raytel or my Mac, right? I'm not, I expect a different level of, I guess, performance, for lack of a better word. Interesting. And yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, even on mobile, and, and I argued for years with Chris about this, where I said, ah, oh, JavaScript's the future, you're fighting, you're fighting a losing fight. But I noticed myself shying away from more uh, web-based Cordova applications, even on mobile. And, I mean, what is Electron but the same concept? I know it's technically different, but it's the same concept. Um, now, having said that, I mean, you're, you mentioned Clojure Script. I hear lots of really interesting things about that in terms of performance and uh, just general like, readability, right? How, how how and what are you using that for? You know, that's that's a good question. To, to start with, I'd be curious, have, do you use much compiled to JS languages, TypeScript, CoffeeScript, that sort of thing? Uh, virtually no CoffeeScript, some TypeScript, but mostly we write straight JavaScript if we're if we're doing anything like that. ES6 or something older? It depends, right? We do a lot of legacy work. Yeah, okay, yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Yeah. I mean, ideally ES6. I would, I would love to do ES6, but that's not the world I live in. Yes, no, totally. I think that's true for many people, unfortunately. Um, I, I've, been, I've been started playing with Clojure a lot. Just I've always kind of been a person who likes Lisp and the Lisp families. Um, okay. I ended up needing to interface a lot more at work and a few other things with the JVM. 
uh, with Java projects, but I really just couldn't bring myself to develop Java a whole bunch. Interesting. And not, I don't, you know, I don't hate Java. I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just, it's never been my primary language. I've spent a lot of time in dynamic languages, a lot of Python, a little Ruby. Um, yeah. And yeah, so Clojure just kind of fell, fell into my lap. So I'd been spending some time the last, I don't know, last year, six or eight months, uh, kind of boning up on that, getting, getting that under control. And then I, and then I started finding, looking at Clojure scripts and I was like, well, you know, I've always done, I've done some front end development. I've, you know, I started back in the bad days when it was hack your project together with jQuery and good luck. Um, Wait, wait, that, that's the past? I, I mean, I would like to think so. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like it, though, does it? And that's certainly not what everyone does. I just want to say I just did a project with the IE6 compatibility, but we could keep going. Oh, ouch, that's painful. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the front end never meant, like, I just didn't feel, I did not feel empowered to do front end development. You know, I knew, okay. I knew the stuff, I can do some CSS, HTML, that wasn't a problem. But just working in JavaScript, getting it right, handling all the state you know, dealing with callback hell, all of that, it never, it wasn't, it didn't excite me and I could do it, but it was never the part of the project that I was excited to work on. And ClojureScript kind of, kind of changed that. Uh, you know, it turned it from this difficult, confusing, complicated process that I was going to get wrong into, at least for the, you know, I haven't built a, I haven't built a giant app yet or, or anything like that, but at least for the projects that I've been working on, it's been it's been super simple. I mean, like you have to get through the development setup, right? Like anything else. Um, but once that's going, it's a very interactive experience. They have a they have first rate like hot clo- code reloading right now. Um, and because you start programming in this, you know, in a functional style where you really are careful about what state you have, where it is, yeah. um, it makes it really easy to reload your app right in the same position it was. You know, you redefine this function, your app reloads without refreshing anything, and you get to keep exactly the same state you're on. So you kind of get to, you know, test and debug and interact and develop all at the same time. So is it the functional aspects of it that, that you found attractive, or was it that it was something uh, that you were used to closure being applied to this front-end development space? You know, I think, bo- I think, I think both. Um, I definitely, uh, am on the more functional bent. Um, okay. you know, I don't, I don't use Haskell any, every day or anything, although I do, I do enjoy it. I think it's an interesting language for sure. So things like Elm are interesting and peer script from that angle as well. But it was this kind of combination where, you know, it, it hit a, it hit a real sweet spot where it was pragmatic. It worked, you know, there wasn't a ton to learn. I didn't have to learn a, you know, a giant new complicated, interesting but complicated type system. But I also got all the benefits of concision and simplicity. And especially from the JavaScript world where you come with, you know, like nothing really to speak of, of a standard library. When you go to the ClojureScript world, you get an awesome standard library filled with really good data structures. Like one of the main things I really like are the persistent immutable data structures that it comes with, the the sets and the vectors and the maps. And... You know, that's the the data structures from ClojureScript were the inspiration behind immutable JS. And they're using the same al- algorithms. And these were the same data structures that came from the Clojure sc- side that have been developed there for the past seven years or so. Um, so I really like that it kind of lets you, you get to start programming in a new paradigm that you can do in JavaScript, but can make it really difficult. And so like some of the things, the other, the other part that I found really interesting, I'd never, I hadn't really, do you do much React work? Virtually none. I'm not a huge fan. I, I'm I'm a little bit of a person, right? I'm coming from an OO, Objective-C, small talk background. So right. 
I'm just dipping my toes into functional and sort of seeing the light on that. That makes sense. So I'd, I'd kind of felt the same. And, you know, the the React interface, the JSX, all that stuff. I was like, uh, this looks kind of gross, like a lot to learn. I don't, what am I getting I, myself I, in here? Yeah. Clojure Script, it, it really felt like Clojure Script and React were made to go together. Um, because React, you know, they have the virtual DOM. They kind of abstract away the DOM for you. And, it, you know, it all works by diffing. But what, what ClojureScript brings is this focus on programming with values. And so, mm. you know, like in JavaScript, if you're trying to compare objects, it's basically like a pointer reference. You're like, are these, do these point to the same things in memory? And so when, when React's going through and going like, okay, well, did this object change? Do I need to redraw DOM elements here? It's forced to walk that object and actually go check and do a, do a full diff between it. But in ClojureScript, because you have program with immutable values, all that is, I mean, if, if the things point to the same place in memory, they have to be the same. So it ended up being in this interesting position where you could have some, a uh, couple of the ClojureScript wrappers for React, uh, Ohm and Reagent in particular, they're actually faster than React. And you get this really simple way where you can, you know, you can program as if you are, as if you get to re-render the whole page all the time. You don't have to worry about all this, like, you know, making sure all your callbacks and all the state and everything got set up right, but you don't have the performance implications of doing that. Interesting. So is it following, so let me just see if I understand. So you're using, let's say, React.js, right? Mm-hmm you are following the reactive pattern of having, you know, the, the not messages, I'm thinking Objective-C, but um, I can see the diagram in my head, the uh, stream, right? The right. reactive stream. And you're simply just replacing JavaScript with Clojure Script. Yeah, that, exactly. Okay. That yeah. sounds really interesting. I mean, so let me ask you this. One of, one of the challenges that I'm, you know, my whole stick, right, is that we take legacy applications and we modernize them. Right. Sometimes that means we containerize them in Docker and help you get your DevOps deployment process a little more automated. Mm, that seems um, like a big one. Yeah, it's a huge pain in the ass. Sometimes it means we make you either HTML5 compatible, which shockingly enough is still a problem, or mobile compatible, also still a problem. Right. A lot of the, the reason I've sort of become attracted to more functional concepts is the number one pain point that I'm finding with migrating people, whether I'm migrating them, you know, to the cloud, quote unquote, or to mobile, is, I mean, state, right? I, I don't right. know how to say this, but like a viper's nest of state to the point of we have to do, you know, a 40-hour deep dive building some sort of diagram because nobody has documentation. Of course not. To figure out what all the state relationships are. Right. A lot of times okay. implicit or right, you're not you're like you're not they're not necessarily declared as dependencies or other things and you're just like they, these things are just or, tightly coupled. Right. Or something stupid where it's just like, you know, something dot something triggers something else, right? Right. Literal property state. Mm-hmm. I'm finding that switching as much as possible to a more functional way can eliminate state a little bit and theoretically avoid maintainability issues. Now, my concern is that with, let's say, something like React, all of this stuff is relatively new, right? Right. Oh, yeah, definitely. Moving giant bags of jQuery to that is probably not economically possible. Mm -hmm. But is it possible to commingle, let's say, ClojureScript and a legacy JavaScript uh, code base where... 
you know, one of the first things we do is we break it up into modules if you can, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Whether those are actual ES6 modules or they're, you know, theoretical modules. The idea is we break it up into modules and we refactor part of it. We'll take the scariest, most stateful part. That might make sense if it were possible, Wes, technically, to make that part a, a functional, whether it's in script. Right now we're having a lot of success with TypeScript, which mm-hmm. obviously is very classical OO. Yeah, is that something you're doing, or is that is that even possible in, in the realm of reality? It, it is. It is definitely possible. Uh, one of the nice things about Clojure and ClojureScript is they they were designed to be hosted, uh, and so they don't they don't try to hide the the details of the hosted language, right? So you get first first rate interrupt. Um, a Clojure function is just a JS function. Um, okay. So you can. Uh, yeah, you can set up exports and all the all the normal stuff that you're you're going to want to do. There's a little bit that you might have to you might have to declare some of those things. One of the things that ClojureScript gets for free is they designed it to work with the Google Closure compiler. I don't know if you're if you've used that at all. No. Uh, most people haven't. It's, it seems to only really be used. It's used for Google. It's what they run all their like you know Gmail and and apps and all that go through it. Uh, and it's an opt whole program optimizing compiler for JavaScript. Uh, but it can do, you know, the, all the all the fancy stuff. It's like Uglify, but it if you, gotcha. it, if you program in this style that's very much like writing Java in JavaScript uh, that Google forces their engineers internally to do, then it can do a whole bunch of what they call advanced optimizations. And like, you know, they can relocate code movement between modules. So if you only want this one function from that library, that's all they will pull and then any de- dependencies that it has to have. Uh, so you get real. If you, and the nice thing then about ClojureScript is no, no one wants to write that, but the compiler will just write it for you. Uh, it also emits like JavaScript from like 2005 or so. Uh, so, so it works on. I mean, I don't, I don't know about IE6, but anything newer than that, it works. It just works on. Right. Um, so it should be pretty easy to do that. I would say, you know, like with many of these, you wouldn't want to do it for too small of a component, like. I watched a talk and someone said something, you know, like, if you need to validate a form for your WordPress blog, just use just use jQuery, right? Like, that's not the problem that React or Angular right. or any of these frameworks are trying to solve. But if you're like, hey, this is like a little complicated piece of my thing, yeah, I think that would definitely be good. And with those optimizations, you can get just a, you know, it'll just be a JS file all compiled down, minified, everything that you can just add as a dependency to your app. That's super interesting. Yeah, I mean... Hmm. That is very interesting. And then so so also part of the reason they wanted to target JavaScript was was really the reach of JavaScript, right? Like it runs in so many places. It's it runs in the browser. And then for me, so like the the React stuff, I'd never really been interested into it, but then it becomes this like, oh, well, ClojureScript and React works well. And right, the ClojureScript community, the Clojure community, it's not a huge community. I mean, it's very active. There's there's really good stuff. They got lots of conferences, but right, they have no they're not lying to themselves about how much they can accomplish. So they really have been trying to, you know, leverage big companies, big projects that they can use. So that's where the React stuff, you know, Facebook, everyone using React, there's a lot of people there doing that. They can leverage that strength. The other thing that that made me think of then was React Native, which I have not yet played with. I made like one little toy Android app. Um, But that's the same kind of thing where, you know, for a small team or people with limited stuff where you really want that reach for as little effort as you want, especially maybe if you're not already expert developers that lets me suddenly be like well i learned like one thing and i had you know a couple other but then suddenly i can make a server app in closure i can write uh you know a node app in 
Clojure script, or I can write for the browser, or suddenly I could make a React Native app and write on iOS and Android. And we mentioned Electron. That is something that folks are holding up as an alternative to Electron. I don't know this for a fact, but I have read that it's actually less aggressive on your CPU and RAM usage. You know, I would totally, I, I could definitely see that. And I, I would believe that. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It seems to be that way. I have not played with it on the on the desktop side, but it does, you know, their their strategy of using native components, um, that kind of thing. Plus, you know, they already have this virtual DOM element to help you uh, help you minimize writes and changes and updates. So, yeah, that definitely it, it definitely seems like a, a a reasonable approach. It's a lot to buy into, though. So I can see that's that's obviously obviously a big hurdle for people. Well, it's not though, right? I mean, if you abstract it away from React, which I'm not the hugest fan of React JS. I did some of it when it was fairly new, um, and ended up going with Angular for you know quote unquote business reasons. Right. But even if you're you know, you Wes, you're definitely a little more hip than me, right? You got closure, you got your Haskell, it's great. But even if you're an old fogey like me and you're doing boring enterprise development for various clients, being more functional in your code, I'm 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 finding even if the language itself is not functional. I mean, let's go to the extreme. Let's say Java. Right. I write a ton of Java. Um, I have written things in Java. Uh, frankly, I'm going straight to hell. <laughs> I think we've all been there, sir. Yes, it's, it's Easter week. I should be nailed to a cross. Huh. I wrote Java applets. Ooh. Yes, I'm very sorry. You can actually prevent or at least mitigate. Maybe prevent's not right. You can't completely prevent it. But you can mitigate some of the deep coupling, some of the spaghetti code hell that comes with those um, tightly OO, quote-unquote, stateful languages by just adopting functional practices, right? You don't need to, because people have bosses, people have clients that say, you know, you're not going to use closure strip. Right, strip and you have teams that have knowledge, they don't, you know, it's a lot of resources right. to suddenly bring in new languages and new new paradigms. I mean, let me give you a great example. I am writing an iPad app in Swift because, you know, you can't fight the tide. <laughs> sure. The fact that Swift is slightly more f- friendly to what they call protocol-oriented programming, but really for our purposes here, let's just call it like a, a type of functional programming, though I know that's not 100% accurate. But that's... Um, tell, yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, uh, that, that, that's interesting. Uh, Clojure has a, a, similar, a similar stance on protocol-oriented programming in, in, I think, at least somewhat similar way. But go on, please. I can already tell that in a year when I'm given the choice to update this app or not, I'm going to avoid a whole class of problems here about that I, oh, I've deeply tired, titled, uh, tired, tied the account model to the you know document model right. right there's probably my point here and i'm sure i'm fever dreaming right now <laughs> yay little kids and germs um i think there's a wider lesson for some of our more quote-unquote dark matter developers to quote scott hanselman for some of our folks who are just working their nine to five in java and c right, sharp and right. whatever i like that, that term. Can, that's funny you know it's yeah it's a great post um, that they can adopt these concepts and make their lives at least a little less painful. I'm wondering what you think about that. No, actually, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, you know, we all we have to have state, right? Like, I mean, if you want your program to do something besides just make your computer slightly warmer, you end up having, you have to do I.O., you have to, to write things, send packets, all of that stuff. But I do think, and that's and that's honestly one of the things I valued most about Clojure, regardless of, you know, if I end up using it all the time or for big projects or whatever, has been the, you know, really the philosophy of it. And to try to, you know, to try to keep things simple, to try to make as many, keep your state, 
on the edges of your program where you need it, where you can handle it, where you can make sure you're dealing with it safely. And then to have as much of the rest of your program be pure functions that just transform the data that you're working with. Um, and I think that that makes it, I also think that adds an element of, you know, it also makes it easier to test. You don't have to, you know, anytime you have this kind of undecidable thing where you're like, well, I can write these tests, but if it depends on state, then this could be anything. Um, so I think it, it does help you focus on, I think, you know, people, some of these frameworks have already had this in a different right, is, is, different way is, you know, if you can have like these small reusable components that you can test well, that you can understand and then build a, compose a program from that, you'll have a better time. I think that works the same way here. But it's interesting to hear you, you know, and it, and I think it's also good, like we, we are seeing a lot more languages that are kind of trying to bridge that gap, right? Like with Scala, yeah. with the features being added to JavaScript, Swift, all, all of those. I mean, sit a .NET developer down and he'll tell you about F-sharp. Right, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think they're going door-to-door now, but that's a whole different issue. <laughs> yes, I think uh, that's funny. Actually, it's great that you mentioned Scala. I've actually found that Scala is a very reasonable and easy way to remove some of the pain of legacy Java apps. Um, now, Java 8 did a lot of this for you, right, because they have like generics and stuff now. Mm-hmm. But again, going back to like the Java 7, 6, late 5 days, doing just like a module in Scala that was self-contained was, was an easy way. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so how much try- Scala have you done? Um, it's weird. I've actually never done a pure Scala project. I've only done... Okay, yeah, mixed, mixed bag. You know, write us a module in 30 days kind of things. Right, so that makes sense. Uh, or like an SDK for something, or, you know, a jar in this case. Mm. Um, I've actually been trying Kotlin out instead of Scala. Are you familiar with Kotlin at all? Yes, I've, I've, not, I've not tried it, um, but I, I've read about it a little bit. What, what do you think of it? I'd be very curious. You know, I'm surprised it doesn't have more adoption because it, it answers a lot of the complaints I think Java developers have. But I don't know anybody else who uses Kotlin for anything, so that's a problem. And that uh, that comes from the folks behind like IntelliJ, right? Yeah, our good friends at JetBrains. Yes, the JetBrains team. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, it's a JVM language, right? So you have full interop with any other JVM language. Um, and is it, it is, uh, statically typed as well? It is statically typed, but it is functional esque. So. I think, and I can't speak for them, obviously, but I think the goal they were going for was a statically typed language that introduces Java developers to functional practices, so to speak, and is kind of an easy bridge, right? You get some of the advantages of classical statically typed languages while also not having all the ceremony. I mean, one thing, if you look at a Scala program versus a Java program, you're just going to see less code. Right, exactly. And I mean... Less code is usually less bugs and hopefully easier to understand. You can see more. I know, you know, I know I've had that experience in Java where you have this, this like really spread out class that takes up like two pages. And you're like, I can't, I can't even look at the whole thing on one page. How can I understand what it's doing easily? Again, I'm super sorry about the applets. Uh, you should be, and I'm sure you've already been punished by this world. You, you know what? IE6. (laughs) Well, this might be a good time to take a a quick little break and talk about our first sponsor. Uh, And that is our friends over at Scale Your Code. So if you've been hearing us, you're you're hearing about the horror stories that we have, some of the mistakes that we're making. Scale Your Code is really something that you should should just check out. It's it's a great resource. Go check out scaleyourcode.com. Sign up. You'll just put in your email. 
You'll get, you know, you can unsubscribe anytime and you'll start getting private emails from them two to three times a month. It's, it's really not bad. I mean, you'll, you'll be delighted to see them. It doesn't overwhelm your inbox. It's very easy, consistent. And suddenly you get access to this great content with real world experts. You know, people like the founder of Ruby on Rails, the CTO of Basecamp, Jeff Atwood, the people who co-founded Stack Exchange and Discord. So these are, they have, they have these amazing resources for people that you might only ever see if they happen to go to a conference you know, or you happen to work at a big company where you can get access to these people who, you know, these are the people that are building the apps and the experiences and the servers that the rest of us all interact with every day. And now suddenly, if you if you go sign up at Scale Your Code, you'll have access to that. You'll have access to that too. And in, for me, the, the blog posts, the emails, it's really been, it can be really hard in this industry to find mentorship, to find people that you trust. There's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of, you know, best practices. And you end up seeing a lot of people talking kind of just about, well, you know, in my experience, this was this or this. And it can be very hard to judge. Scale Your Code makes that easy. They have found these experts that, you know, are universally agreed. These are people that know what they're doing. They have large, successful projects. They're projects that you're familiar with. They're people that have fought internal battles, external battles, built large or complicated or just successful programs and suddenly, this, this is a resource that you have access to that you can learn from all in the comfort of your home, on the bus while you're going to work, right, right on your phone. It's, it's so easy. It's so quick to get started. And then, you know, the blog's there whenever you want to check it out. And a couple times a month, two to three times a month, you'll have this awesome inspiration-filled, tip-filled, horror story-avoiding-filled email just show up right in your inbox. So don't waste any time. Go over to Scale Your Code, sign up, let them know, you know, that, that'll let them know that you appreciate them sponsoring this program. We certainly do. And I think it's a great way as well for people who are new to this field or trying to get started or, you know, maybe you've worked on your own for a long time or you were in a big shop that, you know, you work in a niche industry, you're trying to break out, you want to do more web development or server development. Scale Your Code is a great way to start understanding how to scale your code. What are the problems you run into? What are best practices in the industry? So head on over to ScaleYourCode.com and thank you to Scale Your Code for sponsoring this fine program. So what else is on your mind today, Mr. Dominic? Well, I have a beer of the week, which I forgot to do at the top of the show. Oh, beer of the week. Excellent. And please save your judgy emails. It's almost 11 a.m. here, so it's okay. Yeah, that's right. This makes it fine. Um, It's called Easy Blonde. Apologies for anyone who's offended. Easy Blonde by ACBC from the... Easy, I'm sorry, Easy Blonde ACBC from the Alphabet City Brewing Company, which is from New York. It is a German-style Kolsch beer. Ooh, that looks pretty good. Light body, golden I, ale. I, I just got it in a uh, uh, kind of like a beer of the quarter club thing. So it's actually the first time I'm trying it. A beer of the quarter club. Huh. Now that, they, that is intriguing. Yeah, it's almost like beer of the month, except every three months where they send you a 12-pack of four different types of beers, so three each. Nice. Okay, I could see that. You know, I spend a... I'm always looking for new beers. It's kind of fun to to, to look around, go to kind of weird stores I don't normally go to, to, hey, what kind of... What, what, what do you have I've never seen? So that sounds... That might be something I have to look into because that sounds like I could avoid all that work and still get the same benefit. Yeah, it's not bad. Somebody sent it to me as a gift and I ended up just re-upping it because it's exactly that, right? It's hard to know what's good and what's not. Um, just walking around liquor stores. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so, so Wes, 
go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, uh, on, on the Kotlin stuff, um, yes. how much have you been using it? Uh, a little more than I thought I would, actually. And what's funny is I've been using it for some Android modules. Oh, okay. Yes, because yes. the power of the JVM, right? Power of the, the JVM, of right. Um, I found that for, how can I say this, large like data processing things, um, I had an application for a medical company that had to process not charts, but basically um, uh, some kind of scan. It's not an EKG, but you, you get the idea, right? right? Yeah. And it had an Android tablet component to it, and just writing that in Java seemed unpleasant, right? So I wrote a little jar that actually goes into the Android app as a library. You compile it, right? You compile it to an Android library, and you import it as a binary. Nice. And I wrote that. In yeah. So the interop's pretty easy then. That that sounds nice. Um, if you, I mean, I'm sure you've done a little bit of Java, at least for a lot of Java, because most people have, right? <laughs> right. If, if you know how to import a Java dependency, you know how to do it. And the funny thing is, since I use all of JetBrains tools, it's super easy, because obviously it's their language and it goes. Right. So it has like first class support right there. First class support, right. <sighs> That's interesting. So I'm, I'm, I was looking over here. So it looks like it also, does, does Scotland now have a, a JavaScript story as well? They do. I have not used it for that type of front end work, though. They they have some. I think it's almost like a compile down story, like Closure Script is. Right. Um, I know. I know. Scala has Scala JS as well. So I guess it's a trend we're seeing all over the place. Nobody wants to write JavaScript. Yeah. Exactly. Nobody. Nobody wants to write JavaScript. I uh, had a had a coworker tell me the other day he had he just they were he was helping support his team as a Node platform, uh, and he was like, I just think. He was like, I, I just think this was a mistake. We shouldn't have done this as an industry. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm not sure I agree with you or not, but uh, it's it's hard to argue that what you're saying doesn't have some merit. Yeah, I, I have to say, I briefly dipped my toes into the Node world. And I was like, no, Rails is great. Forget about it. I'm okay. So you've been a Ruby developer for some time then? A little bit. I've been a Ruby developer since the last couple months of Rails 2. So that's a while. Right. Um, my initial my initial initial work, I was a Java developer. Oh, okay. Doing, doing applets. But I quickly left that after a couple of years and became a, you know, I bought a MacBook. I became a Ruby guy. What can I say? There you I, go. Yeah. You, know, you changed your lifestyle. Yeah, changed my lifestyle. Um, You'd fit right in over here in Seattle. You know what? I hear Microsoft loves Macs now. Just kind of show up. Right. Yeah, so what's it like being in Seattle as a Linux guy? That's got to be interesting. Well, don't you know Microsoft loves Linux now? They sent me a little email with a heart, actually. Oh, did they? How adorable. Because I, I, I have some Azure servers, and they're all the bunch of servers. <laughs> yes, nice. Yeah, I've played with Azure Azure just just a little bit. You know, it's not too bad. I, uh, I kind of stay away from that side of the water. Uh, stay more on this uh, Apple, or I mean, uh, Facebooky, Google side of things. So I don't see too much. But there's a lot of people in the industry who are ex Microsofters, or you know, who are kind of just like through churning through that whole pipeline. So, so it is kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, I ended up getting dragged into Azure, kicking and screaming uh, because customers had compliance issues, and Azure at the time had the HIPAA thing. But it's um. It hasn't been bad. I mean, I don't get why Microsoft didn't do this before. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have to say I've been doing an I'm writing a review of Visual Studio Code on Ubuntu and Mac. Oh, interesting. Okay. 
it's actually a lot better than Adam, I think, but not as good as Vim. Mm. <laughs> but I mean, I know a little unfair and elitist, but yeah, okay, no, no, that uh, yeah. that's interesting. I mean, that's one I haven't. I've I've played with Adam. I've used Sublime Text. Um, I've used a few other things like Light Table, but but Visual Studio Code is the one that's still on my list to try. So I'll be curious to see what your reviews like. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, when I when I switched to Mac off of actually Ubuntu 9.10 is I switched from Ubuntu to Mac for a while. Mm-hmm. And now I'm using both half and half. I went to TextMate for the longest time. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. It was obviously discontinued. So I ended up trying a couple things out, ended up on Vim for a while and then sublime text. I, I haven't tried sublime text three just yet, but I sense that I'm in the back on Vim or sublime text. Cause running again, running an instance of Chrome <laughs> from my editor does not make a ton of sense to me yes especially if you're in like where it always breaks down for me is is a resource constrained environment like hey i care less when i'm on you know a nice desktop that has too many resources and but when i'm on when i'm on like a little laptop and maybe your connection is not great so you're running you know builds or other things locally so you're already using resources then you're like what well what am i doing this just so that i can have really pretty code highlighting yeah, I mean my uh, my travel laptop is actually a System seventy six lemur. Okay. It's their it's their fourteen inch laptop. Uh, it does not have the greatest battery life in the world, so anything I can do to clock that down is good. And not running twenty four instances of Chrome. <laughs> yeah, that's right uh, that's like uh, the first thing that you can trim. Yeah. Um. So what does your normal development environment look like? I mean, you're obviously a Linux guy, uh, so yeah, you know, it? I'm. Uh, Normally, it is uh, Vim and okay. a few terminal windows. Uh, lately, mostly because of the closure stuff, I've been playing with Emacs. I know, I know. I just I shouldn't admit that on the air. It's dangerous. Um, I've been enjoying it. Honestly, I, I was using this distribution of Emacs called SpaceMax. Uh, I, I, actually, I have to confess, before I used Vim, before I got my first real job in dev, I was using uh, Emacs for Mac. Oh, interesting. And my first boss beat that out of me. (laughs) Never again. He's like, this is Mac Vim. You're happy now. So why Emacs? Let's, you know what? Let's do it. We've never had this fight. Why Emacs? And I, I gotta say, I'm not like, I'm not totally sold. Um, I've been pretty impressed, especially with space max. Like it was easy to get going out of the box. I didn't, when I was trying it out, I didn't like, I was like, I I don't have a month to sit here and learn all of the Emacs stuff. So space max made it a little easier to like, all right, I need code highlighting. I need, you know, maybe some linting. This is the couple things that I wanted. Um, the reason I picked it up was it has really good closure integration. Um, and, and it has, you know, it's already, it's already uses Lisp as a, uh, as a syntax or as a way to configuration. That part I haven't delved into that much. Uh, I'm not an Emacs Lisp expert or anything, uh, but it comes with this neat program called CIDR, uh, which is a, a closure IDE slash development environment. And it, it kind of pairs well with how, how closure programmers like to work. And it's very, you know, it is a dynamic language. Um, and then it's, it's Lisp background and its focus on, you know, minimizing state and functional programming. It really stresses this interactive development or even, they even call it REPL driven development, which, you know, I imagine you've probably done some similar stuff like yeah. in Ruby and that kind of thing. Yeah, Rails console, all that kind of fun, or the IRB. Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. And so Clojure kind of takes it to the next level. That's like a lot of where, 
you know, you kind of just you. So you really just plug your editor into a JVM that's running and just you just work. And you kind of build your program from whole cloth that way, you know, adding new functions. You can read, especially when they're peer functions, you can just redefine them at any time uh, and keep keep testing. And then as you like, you kind of write tests in the REPL and then you can, you know, copy those out and put them as actual test cases, that, that sort of thing. So that's where I came from. It's just at this first class support. But you don't have to use Emacs for it. I know Adam has something called the Proto REPL. There's become a lot of other other options. But I was impressed with Emacs just in... You know, like I've had a Vim that's had a fair number of plugins and configuration things, and I've I've seen the pain that that can sometimes cause. And I was pretty impressed with the snappiness of Emacs and the. It felt like it bridged a gap between the the simplicity or bare bonesness of Vim and the heavyweight HTML world of visual studio code while still keeping some of the nice features and interactivity and highlighting, you know, all those, all those kinds of things that you, that you might want that are harder to implement in Vim plugins. Interesting. But I think a lot of people would probably just tell me, Hey, go get a real IDE and you'll be fine. Well, I tend to use heavy IDEs, but I, there is something, there's something nice about having a smaller text editor, right? Just to pound something out really quick. And not have to worry about configurations and all that kind of crap. And I've always enjoyed, like, I, I feel like, like, I have no problem with an experienced developer, professional using something like that, you know, as a tool. That's, you know, because you get a lot of stuff, code completion, all, all that stuff. Um, Test coverage, stats, things like that. I mean, yes. I mean, even for Ruby, I use RubyMind, which is JetBrains tool. And the reason for that is that you can actually set it up to, like, run the tests every time. Right? To, Just, totally. Yeah. Um, but I feel like when I've been learning, it's sometimes gotten my way and, you know doing things a more minimal way forced me to make sure that I understood all the parts and components and how they fit together. Oh no, I totally agree. I mean, I have a brother who believe it or not is 10 years old because giant age gaps are fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I just gave him an old MacBook pro for his birthday. Oh, and okay. Yeah. His, nice. His school, believe it or not, has a partnership with code.org where they have an after school program where, where they do like code with, you know, uh, what's the Star Wars girl, uh, Ray? Yeah. Okay. Yes. You code with Ray and BBA and you do all these challenges. That sounds awesome. I want to do and that. Now. They gave him a list of editors he could use. I made him use a, te- uh, what is it? Textpad.app, the stupid one that comes on Mac that doesn't do anything. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's how you learn, right? You have to make the syntax mistakes. You have to understand that. You can't have the IDE complete half the method for you. Exactly. I had a I had a colleague who, uh, well, a departing colleague who was interviewing for a new position, and they, I mean, there's a lot of problems with this already, but they were making an interview with this like web thing where he was doing coding things in the brow- coding tests in the browser, um, and so he was he just had to be straight with the guy. He's like, you know, this is not how I work. I don't know necessarily what all the method names are or the capitalizations because my IDE does it. And I, you know, I know what the language is. I know the high level features. I don't have to know those things, but it made it difficult for him then in that more limited situation. Cause he just, you know, that was, that's not what he had to learn anymore. Yeah, that is, that is a problem. And I, and I imagine I would not perform super well without, you know, syntax completion and stuff like that anymore. But it also maybe just highlights the, you know, the, how bad some coding interviews right. are because it's like, well, if you're, you know, I'm a professional, of course, that that's not how I'm actually going to work. I'm going to use this IDE that you paid for. You know, three tabs of Stack Overflow. Yes, exactly. That, amen, brother. Amen. So, uh, so you come from the uh, Ruby place. I've been doing at work. Um, 
we're using a, a lot more chef to control things. So I traditionally, my dynamic language of choice in the past seven years or so has been Python, um, partially because I came from an academic physics background and used it there first before I started doing all this other development stuff. Uh, so now I've been trying to learn Ruby, mostly from the chef angle, but, you know, I have to re- interact with some, I have some Ruby projects I support and other things. It's It's been interesting. Have you, I'd be curious what you thought about Python or if you've dabbled in Python at all. Um, very, very little. I mean, I've done it when needed and I've, of course, written like, you know, scripts for Python. Right. Um, particularly for Twilio, weirdly enough, to interact oh, okay. with iOS apps. I, I, you know what? Should I say this? Because we're going to, I'm going to get a lot of mail. <laughs> I sort of wish I had picked Python over Ruby way back when. Oh, wow. That's not what I, I that's not something I usually hear. Uh, well, you know, what, what I've seen in the limited work I've done in Python, and it's been very little, right? It's been mostly Python flash things, uh, which oh. for Ruby people is a rough equivalent to Sinatra. Right. I like the batteries included nature of Python. Yeah, it has a nice, ha- nice standard library. There's a lot of things you can just import right there. Yeah. I mean, as Ruby apps, particularly Rails apps age, gem compatibility becomes a huge issue. And I am learning that now. Oh boy! Yeah, that, that's a problem. And, and in fact, right now I'm on a, a, a 90 day migration project, migrating Rails two apps to Rails five. Oh wow! Which is a nightmare. Yeah, that sounds that sounds difficult. I mean, you know, regardless of the underlying platform at all, even, but just that's that's an early project. Yeah, that's it. it, it and it's not the app code itself because you know what, refactoring someone's code to be in, in modern a modern version of Ruby is not that hard. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that like a gem may no longer exist. Yeah, totally. And you're like, well, how do I replace this dependency? Is there something I can actually just use easily? How much refactoring is this going to now imply? Right. Or, I mean, another issue is like if people were using active record procedures or, God forbid, like actually writing SQL. Oh, Instead right. of using active record. Active record has changed a lot. So there are a number of scale and performance implications you have to worry about there. Where I get the impression that you know, a Django app of a similar age would have, of course, challenges, but because it's not importing so many third-party dependencies in the form, you know, Ruby gems, right? You wouldn't have some of these very weird edge cases where I'm like rolling a gem for these people just to replace a dependency that their original developer pulled off of GitHub from some kid in, you know, Idaho. I, I do think you're probably right. There. I mean, you could still run into that depending on, you know, how careful you were setting it up, obviously. But I do think you're right. Like there are the, the Django projects I've done, you know, the uh, the gem list equivalent pip freeze. Um, yep. It's not that long. You know, it's maybe 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 it's 10 items or something. Um, and a lot oh half God, of them. That, yeah, that's nothing. <laughs> and half of them are probably like Django affiliated things anyway that, you know, do a generally good job of kind of keeping up with the Django changes. Yeah, these apps are averaging about thirty-five gems. Ooh, yeah, that's 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 trouble. Leftpad.rb. Uh old versions of Nogogiri that apparently were written by Satan. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! That gem. That's my new Ruby drinking game. Just anytime I see it building, take a drink. Well, are, are you now locally on your Ubuntu bot, or is it Ubuntu or that you're using? Uh, at, at work, I am using Ubuntu. Uh, my personal laptop is Arch. Okay, well, well, I mean, just should be fine anyway, right? Yeah. I found that, like, yeah, I mean, this is probably a rabbit hole about, like, compatibility <laughs> issues between old systems and new systems. But I could be wrong, but I definitely get the impression that, like, on the Python side of the street, this issue is not nearly as hard. 
No, it doesn't seem to be. I mean, I when I started the the Python stuff, I, you know, it's not great. It's I will not say that Pip Pip is not the best or premier in terms of software development management. You know, especially when you see things like Cast Swift doing it or Rust or any of these modern modern tools. But it doesn't seem as bad as as Ruby. And so we've had a, I've had a few issues of you know like oh well they've, you know it's new they've updated this or made some serious changes. So I do need to do some refactoring. But for the most part, I can avoid version pins and. And, and other issues, which which is is handy, and I feel like part of that kind of goes in with my what what I've experienced with Ruby, which there's like I'm really torn on it because some of my frustrations from Python come from my now functional bent, so I don't like that there's so many statements. I, I appreciate that Ruby is more expression oriented. Yeah. Um, if I have to write if this return this one more time in Python, I'm just gonna shoot myself. Um, but the flip side is uh, the Ruby. The kind of pervasive magic, the the requires that then you know then new symbols just show up without having namespace prefixes in front of them. Those kinds of things have made it a little more difficult for me to get started and really understand. Especially then coupled like I don't I like that they you know they Ruby kind of minimizes you not know, to have parentheses for function calls and all that stuff, but it just ends up like this big. I, I feel like maybe it's you know I feel like Ruby put a lot of work into making it read kind of like English, which I think for someone come new to programming or you know new to ruby i think that would actually work really well but as for for me as someone who like already really understands these concepts and wants to be able to easily know like what part of the syntax is this thing it's been a little bit more difficult yeah i mean and i would also separate a little bit the ruby language from rails basically right yeah that's a good point because i mean if you were writing like a padrino or sinatra app uh using ruby you can get some pretty tight, elegant code without like a million dependencies. Mm-hmm. Once you're in Rails land, I mean, what, what I found is efficiency at initial dev time in Rails is super high. Things get things just don't age well. That's mm. what I think it is. And that may be a cultural thing or it may be, you know, like the, some of the magic issues. I mean, active record itself is a black vortex of voodoo. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right? Um, you know, I've written C and C++ extensions for Ruby to for performance reasons and that is a whole bucket of of voodoo again right yes absolutely yeah. i mean that's probably why you're having problems with nogo geary because there's a native extension to that yeah exactly that yeah yeah so it's it's e- like python and ruby are one thing i look at platforms like node.js where oh my god to do anything you're importing like a hundred dependencies right. which yeah is ridiculous and that almost seems somehow worse, but that doesn't mean that, I don't know. See, I don't want to be too down on Ruby, right? Cause it's been very good to me and I do a lot of work in it. And it's Absolutely. Awesome. I, would, I mean, and it's, it's certainly not Pearl. Hey man, Pearl. That was just, I, a, that was just a cheap like, chat. I apologize everyone. You know what? Ruby's Pearl as it should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's certainly more Pearl than Python. That's for sure. But you're right. No, I don't want to be down on Ruby either. I think it's it's a good language, a fine language. Uh, it's just been kind of an interesting experience switching paradigms, like but not you know switching languages, but not switching. You know, they're both object oriented. They both came out nearly at the same time, so it's just been it's been like a you know it's like a switching from dating one twin to the other, and they they look kind of the same. They have the same feel, but then when you get to know them, you're like, okay, well, this is different. Yeah, that, that's true. Right. I, I think. I mean. Don't get me wrong, Ruby lets you do lots of crazy things that are bad. Right. 
but you don't have to, right? I mean, there's always issues of uh, you can you can shoot yourself in the foot in just about every language, and the, and that's kind of my thing, right? You you could be responsible and like not have 35 gem dependencies. Exactly. You chose not to for some reason. I can, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's tough. Uh, now, when you say Python, are you doing primarily web development or these like scripts or uh, server stuff? A, a little, a little bit of all of that. Uh, some, some definitely some of develop web development. I've got a couple of Django projects, a couple of Flask projects. Um, yeah, and then I mean, then some just like some some various scripts, other things that that tie things together. And then my, when I started out with it, I was doing um, mostly using it to to orchestrate like numerical simulations that I'd write in C or other things, and then kind of tie things together with Python. Makes so sense. while we're talking about web development, maybe this is a good time to talk about our other sponsor, and that. Oh, my friends, that is DigitalOcean. So go on over to DigitalOcean.com. There you'll find a cloud hosting provider that's dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easiest way to spin up a cloud server. So if you're listening to us yammering on about web development platforms and you're thinking, oh, I'd love to do that more, but you know, but after I've run in this giant IDE or run in this crazy Electron app, I just don't have the resources on my local machine anymore. My friends... If you have 55 seconds, you can get a brand new, super shiny VPS in the cloud for only $5 a month. So that comes with 512 MB of RAM, 20 gigs of SSD, one CPU, and a whole freaking terabyte of transfer. And that is only at the $5 level, so it only gets better from there. Plus, if you use our magic promo code, Coder Digital, you'll get a $10 credit. So then you can get started, get two droplets if you want, or head on over to their pricing page. There you'll see very simple, transparent pricing. They've got both monthly and hourly, and they'll show you what you get. So if you want to use that whole $10 credit to get one thing, you get a whole gig of memory, 30 gigs of disk, and two terabytes of transfer. And this isn't that like second-rate transfer, bad petering. We're like, yeah, sure, you get two terabytes, but you'll never be able to use it, sucker. No, DigitalOcean has awesome peering. They've got 40 gig of E right to the KVM hypervisor, it's legit. It's performant. First rate. Plus, they've got data center locations all over the world. New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Frankfurt. And to pair with that, they've got an incredible API. It's what they use to build their site. It's what they use to build their apps. They're dogfooding this stuff. And so you know it's good. It's what all the open source apps use that, that tie into the DigitalOcean ecosystem. Maybe you, you, know, you need... You're using Vagrant locally, but you suddenly need more tests or you want to run a more powerful instance. Vagrant's got a DigitalOcean plugin. Yeah, just use it. It's super easy. Ansible does. Chef does all of these things, right? DigitalOcean has great community support. And part of that is because they pay authors $100 to $200 for technical tutorials. And so you quickly have started seeing, paired that with DigitalOcean's real editors, you end up in a situation where you Google something and some of the first docs you'll find turn you into an awesomely written DigitalOcean article. All in all, it makes DigitalOcean a great place to host your next project. If you need a box to do some comp- compiling, you want to tie it into your CI system, or you just need you know a new host to run your Quasel server, head on over to DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code CODERDIGITAL. Get started today. Thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this fine podcast. So do you got some droplets yourself, Mr. Mike? I have too many droplets. Yeah, I know. That just you just start accumulating them after a while. Have to have like occasional purges and and prune them all back. Oh yeah, yeah. I have a ton of droplets. 
you know, it's so easy to just spin up a Joker instance on Dio and just deploy something and test it out. Yeah. So you were talking about uh, Docker a little bit earlier. You know, I'm, I'm, and maybe I'm just too far on the other side where I've heard a lot of frustrations with Docker from from the ops side, from, you know, people who've been doing web development for a while. I, I'm really curious what you're, you know, what you're liking about it, how you use it. Sure. Uh, so right off the bat, let me preface it. Docker is not perfect, right? Absolutely. Nothing is. What I'm using it for is migrating legacy applications to cloud platforms like DigitalOcean um, and also implementing some sort of DevOps framework in these environments. I have customers who in the past were just like FTP up, Ruby Ooh, code. Yep. Yeah, all kinds of bad stuff. So when you're coming from that world, some of the trade-offs you make with Docker don't feel quite as bad, right? Um, my most common setup is I actually use it with Doku, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with Doku at all. No, I'm not. Uh, so Doku is an open source implementation of the Heroku build system. Oh, okay, interesting. And it runs off of Docker containers. So, um, so you, you can have that Heroku-like simple development-oriented experience, but not have to use Heroku. Well, and you can tie it into Atlassian uh, and run Bamboo tests. You can tie it into Jenkins or Jenkins tests. Oh. You can relatively quickly take a web application and impose upon it a uh, continuous integration strategy. And frankly, a non-FTP deployment method, right? Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to have to... That yeah. sounds like something I could definitely use. That is the most common thing that I implement for people. The second most common, but I'm going to tell you, this is probably the more likely thing for the future, is using Docker Compose um, and actually having some custom scripting done where you're doing the same thing, you're running their CLI integration, or rather their CI integration. Most of the time these are enterprises, so it's like some you know Jenkins server inside their physical facility. Um, sometimes it's something like CodeShip, who we have... Uh, Long-time listeners know we had their CTO on the show a couple years ago. They are a, a Bamboo-like C- CLI tool. They actually have Docker support now, which is really interesting. So you can like hand them a container. Um, they've productized it, calling it Docker CLI, and they'll run your tests. Internally at Buccaneer, we use uh, Bitbucket's pipelines. Oh, okay, yeah. So same idea, but it only works. it's much more limited than either of the two enterprise solutions I just mentioned, um, where it will run the test before you deploy the idea here is to get people off of really stupid, throw it over the wall to ops deployment mechanisms and get them onto, at least for staging, right? At least for dev and staging servers, get them onto either you're using Docker, uh, an internal version of a Docker hub, or you're just uploading a container with Docker, um, Docker Compose, whatever. It doesn't matter. It could be Doku, it could be Docker Hub, it could be Docker Compose. Getting them to have a systemized, scriptable, therefore, uh, you know, automatable, is that a word? Way <laughs> it is to, now. It is now. Way to manage their deployments and to, the idea is not to eliminate the ops team. I mean, some resistance I get when I go in talking about this stuff is like, oh, you're just trying to, you know, get rid of our ops you team. Want you want no ops or whatever, yeah. No, no, the ops team still needs to be there. The idea is that emergency changes, minor changes, we need to get rid of some of this, in my opinion, this cruft around, oh, I threw it over the wall to Jane, but Jane's on vacation, so it's not getting deployed for three days. Yeah, no, I, that's that's really interesting. I think that's a huge problem. I think that our whole industry is really kind of you know working on 
um, trying to trying to merge those two things back together, or at least create better working environments, less hostile, right? Less yeah. adversarial. Because ultimately, we're all on the same team, really. And I think no, no. one of the things I've been like I really enjoyed about Docker has been I, I feel like it it's helped. I've seen a lot of like um, developers who you know they've worked on the same team for a long time. And they never, you know, they, they set up their dev environment locally. They weren't even using like a vagrant thing or anything. Um, and it just ends up to this mess where they don't really know how to set it up anymore. There's not, it's not good documentation. And that kind of bleeds over into production where they don't, they don't have a tight control on what, what inputs and outputs do they need. And going through the process of dockerizing it has helped me or I think helped them. You know, you, you really have to be more aware of what dependencies do you need? How do I have to set the system up? What am I requiring and what am I, you know, what ports do I need to open? All, all of those kinds of things. Well, especially for some of these enterprises who are deeply paranoid about ports. Right. Um, the process of containerization just shows you, well, wait a minute. Why do you have these other ports open? You literally don't need them. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, exactly. And you can, you know, start. I know, I know a big problem at some of the places I've worked has just been, you know, you, you do all this work to declare pen- dependencies at the program level, but then you don't have anything that tracks these interdependencies and connections at the system right. level, and then suddenly, if you're in this Docker Compose world, you can start doing that. That's exactly right. Um, ideally, in the future, for an enterprise, you would be running your own internal Docker hub, right? Yeah. You can do that, and you would actually automate that as well. Yeah. Um, we can think about disaster recovery scenarios. If a box goes down, you can redeploy a Docker container off your internal Docker hub automatically through some sort of heartbeat check. And then, you know, hopefully you've been backing up the database that backs whatever that application is and actually do a restore and have, you know, seconds of downtime. Yeah, exactly. And it gives you that kind of that confidence. And I guess maybe as a parallel to some of the stuff we were talking about with the with the functional programming, like from a naive perspective, sometimes it seems limiting. You're like, well, you're just you're not going to you're just not going to use state. You're going to you're going to limit yourself. You're going to restrict yourself. And in the same way with Docker, like, you know, you have these stateless containers Right. And there's rules, right? There are limitations or you have to think in a different way about your app. Yeah. But it, it just seems to be that it's working out that those, you know, it, it's worth the the little bit of constraint. It's worth the upfront cost to later have a system that you understand better and is maybe simpler. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah, that's exactly my theory, right? Have you used any of the other, like, have you used Rocket or anything like one of the, any of the other container Docker type implementations? So a little bit with core OS, mm-hmm. um, took a look at rocket. One thing that does concern me about this whole space is that Docker has become the Kleenex of containers. Yeah, right? very much so. Which I like Docker. We actually had the Docker folks on Coder radio when they were just an open source project in dot cloud. Oh, that's great. But that's yeah, actually they're great guys, but that was kind of, um, that's kind of scary, right? Because now you have one giant target for exploits and hackers and things like that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. This may be my enterpriseness coming out because I'm all constantly paranoid. But it's it. it's a re, it's a real threat, and when you have you know a real business type thing on the line, that you have to be concerned about it. Right. You, well, I mean, let, let's think about the last election. Right. Let's think about you yeah. know it, it, the problem is real. Is what I would say to people. Yeah. Exactly. Spot on. So, now, having said that, I mean. Rocket is great. I, I have I've played with it, but I have not used it in production. Um, I've never been to a meeting where someone didn't say container and meant Docker. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. That is kind of right. becoming the de facto thing. So that that's a little scary. 
And I've had a lot of resistance to this, though, Wes. I've had a, a lot of uh, really strong pushback. Could um, you classify that a little bit? I'm, I'm curious what, well, you know, what I, objections. I can give you a, a real-world example, if you like. Yeah, please do. Um, I've had a bitch of a week. Ooh, I'm sorry I to hear that. I bombed a coding test because I was too busy and too frazzled and probably shouldn't have even gone for the gig. Yeah, I know how that goes. Yikes. Yeah, so I lost two sales because... One was just normal. They decided not to do the project. The other was this company was so, how can I say, so set in their ways of like R-syncing their files up to a box that the entrenched uh, ops people that I was talking to, the it was like the manager of ops or whatever, just couldn't couldn't bring himself to recognize that there was like an inherent problem there. Oh, and he just totally blew up the deal. What I found really interesting was the reason they called was because they had downtime. They were a local company and they had a tremendous amount of downtime for just this type of scenario. And I had met someone there at some sort of chambers of commerce event talking about containerization, you know, disaster recovery, all this kind of, uh, kind of song and dance. But the, the manager of ops, I think it was like ops manager, just, would not get on board, did not want to change. And I couldn't believe it. Well, actually, I do believe it, right? Because this is the kind of problem you have in the enterprise space where they know they have a problem. They have money, so it's not like they're budget constrained. Right. But you have people who've been with the company for 25, 30 years that have a lot of, let's just say, political capital. Yes, entrenched interests, that sort right. of thing. That if something is a risk to them or their department, because the, the truth is, I mean, I say I don't want to get rid of ops people, which is true, but like they have a really, they have two developers and 20 ops guys. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm not, so something's wrong, right? Definitely. Either these developers are super bad and are like writing viruses and uploading them to their servers <laughs> <laughs> or, or there's something dysfunctional in how they manage their IT. Um, he just would not budge. Wow. I mean. And local, I was there. I did a song and dance. I had a, I had my iPad, which is how I do my PowerPoints. And, you know, he just, you know, he's, he gave a lot of reasons that didn't make sense. But really, it came down to it would be a shifting of the balance in headcount. Because therefore, you would have faster development, more development, and less operations. Right. Which isn't really true, except in this case, where you have 20 ops guys doing nothing. But I, I just couldn't believe it. The downtime, according to my point of contact there, cost them $2 million. Wow. Talking about a $20,000 implementation. That's crazy. Right. Yeah. Just because this guy had the political capital, you know, he was like schoolmates with the CEO, that kind of thing. You know, it is is interesting, too, from that perspective. Like, you know, I think think there is kind of a narrative that some operations teams see that Docker – or containers like that it doesn't give them anything you know that like that it's a developer side story that that's where the, the benefit is and then for them it's just a new thing to learn and to support and i'm not sure that that's true all the time oh i, I think it's even worse than that i mean i I've, I've spoken to like ops managers or it managers who feel like it's a threat to their people and to their department yeah wow yeah which i mean that's like a I mean, one, I can understand that perspective, right? Like you want to, your job in, in that role is to protect your organization and, and that sort of thing. But the larger goal is obviously to serve the business interest. And if you can do things more efficiently, you know, it seems like you're obligated to pursue it. 
Yeah, not really. Yeah, not really. Exactly. I, that was some one angle I was kind of interested um, in Rocket. I've I've had some experiences in, in places like that too, where you know Docker, especially maybe even the buzzwordiness, kind of drew people away. They'd already you know taken the time in the past five years to you know build their whole architecture on VMs, and they're like, why why do we need containers? What is this? Is it just more stuff for us? Um, one thing that I th- I liked about Rocket was that it. You know, Docker kind of comes with a lot of stuff, especially if you go full Kubernetes or other approaches where suddenly you have, you know, the traditional ops is kind of disappearing a little bit and you have this higher level of orchestration and, and arrangement. I, I, I thought Do- Rocket maybe could could help bridge that gap because, it you know, it doesn't have this root daemon that runs all the time like Docker does. And you just, you know, it's just a process that you run and it starts up your container and it's a, it's a process running and it integrates a little bit better with system D or other, you know, in it services. So it seemed to me like there might be a potential here where, you know, it's like, it's really in some ways not that different than just shipping a jar, right? Like, hey, ops guy run Java with this jar and that's my app in the same way. You're like, hey, run rocket with this container image that I gave you. And, you know, your job is to make sure that the server is running it and that it's up and performing normally. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I again, I, I didn't do a lot with Rocket. I briefly looked at it. I wouldn't be surprised if there were some security implications for Docker as it's currently being used by a lot of folks, right. i.e. the wrong way, and if there weren't advantages in a sort of different method. Um, now, have you used Rocket in production at all? No, I have, I have not yet. So it's a kind of an unproven uh, idea there. Um, okay. But I have, I mean, I've used it for some smaller stuff on my own, and I've I've used I've used the some you know Docker in the, in the same way. Um, I guess yeah, it depends on you know how full container are people willing to go. What's the migration path look like? Um, and you know, yeah, I don't know how we how we sell that how we sell that better. One of the bigger things for me when I have to do some of my own operation stuff is just. You know, when I have this deployable artifact that I know works, that's already passed through my CI system, it's been tested and built and, and it lives there. And it's just an artifact now. It makes, you know, if I need a new server of it or a new instance of it running, it's just so simple. I don't have to make sure that I installed everything right or, or any of it. It's just you start it up and it, and it runs. But I can see how people are are, are somewhat put off, especially, I don't know, the, the hype, I think... Has has damaged a lot of it, um, especially like Docker has had it seems like a fair number of issues in production in yeah. not breaking changes and having consistency between versions that sort of thing, which you know obviously operations people hate. Yeah, I, th- I would say the biggest weakness there is they've been very aggressive about revving their version numbers. Yes, um, yeah, and and a lot of that I think has to do with like a rel, rel adoption and things like that. But oh yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, so the world we live in, though the world we live in, it's uh, it's always a fight, isn't it? You know what? In five years, everybody's going to say containerization is crap. It seems like a cycle we go through. Yes, it is. It is a cycle that we go through. So what what's going to be next then? Are we going back to bare metal? I have no idea. I mean, I, I I'm hearing things about ARM servers. Yeah. Okay. Um, sure. But I'm I'm not that low level of a guy to really know what the advantage of that would be. Yeah, how how involved with operations type work are you on a day to day basis? 
uh, fairly involved now, but very uh, narrowly involved, right? So the only operations work I do is Docker work. Oh, okay. I don't, I mean, I spin up servers, stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Anything you like, you know, it's a dev shop, so we have all kinds of crap running. But I'm not big into, uh, you know, I, I don't use Chef a ton, for mm-hmm. instance. I don't use every um, kind of CI tool. Which is, I think, a side effect of being, you know, you just have to pick stuff and go with it and get good at it. Right. Right. You, yes. can't, you can't know everything. If you have all the breadth, then you have no depth. And what are you really getting done at that point? Couldn't have said it better myself. It's it's hard, though. You know, there's there's so many options and it's hard to sometimes not feel siloed when you've made those choices, which I think oftentimes are good choices and necessary choices. But it can be hard when you when there's there's just so much going on all the time. Um in all of these, in the container world, in the deployment world, in the CI world, um, it can be hard to keep straight. And like I've, I've been, I was never a Jenkins user in the past, not out of anything. It just, it just hadn't been part of my life. I'd, I'd used other tools or some in-house tools. Uh, so now I've been doing a, a bunch of Jenkins stuff. Um, and so I'm, I'm feeling that I'm like, well, I already knew about CI and I've already used it, but this is another way to do it. Yeah. I mean, that stuff has matured quite a lot over the last, uh, I'd say five or six years. Um, you know, even curmudgeons like me who weren't really into test-driven development are now doing BDD. Right, yeah. That's a, that, that, that's a good point. I mean, I, I'm at least glad to see that we have more more tooling and we can start, like, whatever whatever DevOps means and, and all of that, but, like, we can at least start to do things in a more consistent manner, a more repeatable, testable manner, that will hopefully, I, there's just so much, you know, incidental complexity all over the place. If we can start minimizing some of that, you know, making it really easy to run tests locally, to have the same tests run consistently, to have automated tests, to have, yeah. you know, um, maybe even property-based tests that can generate tests for you, that, that sort of thing. I'm, I'm definitely interested in helping, helping, helping advance those causes because it seems like some, some areas, some sectors are very slow to adopt that and others have picked it up right away. Yeah, I mean, one thing I do worry about is duplication of effort, though. Yes. Um, I mean, this is probably more on the Linux side of life, particularly in desktop environments. But <laughs> Full circle. To, full circle. I, you know, we, we don't need, what is it, like 20 languages that compile into JavaScript, right? We don't, at some point, I think we're wasting a lot of resources on things that don't make a lot of sense. Um. I'm not sure how much that matters. I know that this is a unpopular opinion, especially among the open source community. Uh, I would just like to mention packaging formats for a second. Right? Yeah, totally. Imagine if there had been like only like a Pepsi and a Coke, the two, and everybody just worked on one of those. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is that wrong? I mean, I think about like particularly. I think about Node.js in particular. Node has spawned in a relatively short amount of time a huge. like its own jungle of development crap, right? Electron apps, just Node Web Apps Express, which is basically Rails. Yes. But Node was trying to solve a different problem originally, right? It was going to be high performance, kind of like a single threaded request in, request out thing. You, and then somebody, like a programmable then Nginx almost in some ways. Exactly. And then somebody wrote a Rails framework on top of it, right? Basically Express is a <laughs> right. very similar to Rails or Django. Is that what we're doing is that is that our goal here is to recreate everything we already have in something new and sexy so that we can say it's new and better 
you know, it, it does, it does feel like that sometimes. I think you're especially right in the, the node community in the JS community. Part of it might be that they've had kind of crappy tools to start working with. Um, but, and then there's like the, also the other side of like, you see there's so much activity and development there that like that part's really exciting. Like there's so much work happening. There's tons of projects that release all the time, but the, the, the bad side is exactly what you're talking about, which is that it's just constant churn and the benefits seem kind of questionable. Like for me, I see it differently. Like there's, you know, there's new languages or platforms that, that do offer some benefits. One's like I've been kind of interested just academically in uh, Elixir, which is a, Oh yes. Um, oh. So, so to me that seems different in that, like you hear you have a different runtime that you know, enables that a different, different, a different way of programming and thinking about your problem Node doesn't seem like it does that. Okay, but Elixir is different, right? No, yeah. it's not. You know, let, let's take it away from languages. I know people, everybody has their hobby horse. Sure, right. You know, I'm very interested in bots, uh, software bots, AI bots. Mm-hmm. And I have been doing some work in Node and JavaScript because that's the non, I don't like working in Windows, right? Yeah. I work in Linux and Mac. Um, so it's the interface to the Microsoft bot framework. Google has a bot framework they call Actions, I believe. Um, Apple, in three or four years, will have something, I have no doubt. They like to be a little late to the party. Yes. There is Mycroft, which I still haven't got my box, guys. Indiegogo backer, what are you doing? (laughs) There is, uh, what's the other open source one? Oh my God, there's another open source one I was using. Anyway, go to GitHub, you'll see like 400 projects. None of them seem to be moving forward at, oh, Facebook is the other big one, right? The Facebook Messenger bots. They've all effectively duplicated effort. And let me give you a, a real-world example. You can order a shitty pizza from Domino's through the Microsoft bot and through the Facebook bot. You can tie to both those APIs and have your app do it. The, the Microsoft police are here to arrest me. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, it was nice talking to you, Mr. Tom. It was great. But why not have, like, an open standard for this kind of thing, right? I want my computer what happened bridge. I want... You know, I want Siri or Google Home to know what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah. And I don't think that it is in the long-term general good for these companies to be so, I guess, proprietary about it. Like, they want to own the information. But because of that, we have four 400 different ways to order a really bad pizza from Domino's. Right, and then all that effort, like, you have to have people who are then building all those little bridges between their APIs and the Domino's APIs and all this, which you're exactly right. Those are just, it's all just duplicated effort. It's not adding anything novel or new to the ecosystem when we could just have, you know, just like one one abstraction or a set of abstractions that we could then interface with. Or we could have a standard, right? It doesn't need to be that we only have, like, one code base that we're all working on. It could be, you know what, you know, there's a USB-C standard, right? Why not have a bot interface standard where if you follow the standard, these are how the API works. Yes. See, that seems like a very sensible idea and therefore will never be adopted. No, because that has to be proprietary, right? That, That's where the value add is. Uh, let me get my R. Let me, you know what? I'm just going to go listen to the free software song in a few minutes. And... <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <sighs> so what do, we, what do we do about that as an industry? How do we, is, is there anything we can do? Well, I think there's some small things we can do, right? One, and this is another topic, if you if you want to jump into it a little bit, I don't know what time you have to run. Um, don't use proprietary SDKs. And what I mean by that is, of course, you're going to have to use proprietary APIs, but don't use 
like don't import a proprietary thing into your application that you don't need to, right? That's not from the platform vendor. Perfect example. Bunch of people who write iOS apps are bitching that Swift does not have ABI compatibility yet. Oh. And the reason they're bitching is because that makes writing proprietary uh, compiled as uh, library, basically, that someone you know would import to their Swift project very hard because it depends on which version of iOS they're running, what version of Xcode, and all that kind of crap. Right. Pro tip. You shouldn't be importing somebody's proprietary SDK that you can't see the code of. No, that seems see that seems very reasonable. Right. So maybe we start small. Maybe we start saying if we have two choices, one is proprietary and one is in some way open. And I'm not like a freedom loving hippie, right? It doesn't need to be GPL. Like it could be Apache, it could be BSD, it could be something like that. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Go with that, even if there's like a minor disadvantage to going with that, or it's a little more work to set up. Because then eventually we will have things in the open space licensed in a way that in the future, you know, the the eight-year-old kid who, who's eight-year-old today and is going to invent Skynet will actually be able to go on whatever eventually replaces GitHub and see all the work you did and be like, oh, well, actually, he was wrong and let me fix that. I, I think that's, yes, exactly. And it, and it, uh, it just has a lot, you know, has a lot of incidental benefits just in terms of transparency. Also, you know, especially when you're using something you're using it as a business you're depending on it you're you know selling it to other people or telling people to rely on it that that proprietariness can really you know especially as you know as developers as people like we are some of the people who could who could actually go open it up look in there maybe fix something but at least you know debug things and figure out what's going on and all of that just goes away when you have these closed walls closed gardens that you just kind of have to poke at the edges and hope what happens is what's supposed to happen and the problem with these closed gardens, too, is your software uh, may not exist. Your garden may just be dead in 10 years and, you know, not even run, right? Yeah, right, yes, exactly. And then what, what are you going to do? You'll be like, well, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. You'll be like those, those places that are stuck running like Windows 95 in a VM so it can talk to over a SCSI cable to some old piece of hardware that never got updated. Exactly. Which you'd think we'd get away from, and we built this whole exactly. new platform to to do these things, and yet those are not the problems that we solved. Yeah, no chance. <sighs> well, now I'm just depressed. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it then. I think so too. Thank you very much, Michael, for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. We'll have to do it again great. sometime. Yeah, I'd love to have you on again. Excellent. All right. Well, this has been episode 252 of Coder Radio. If you liked it, head on over to JupiterBroadcasting.com. There you'll find the archives. Head on over to slash contact. That's the contact page. You can send some feedback. Tell Michael just how much fun the show was or the opposite, whatever you like. There's also, uh, what is the subreddit? Is it Coder? CoderRadio.reddit.com? CoderRadio.reddit.com. Perfect. Hey, that's super easy. Um, if you want to hear more from me, I'm at West Payne on Twitter. Where can they find you, Mr. Michael? At Jimanuku on Twitter. Beautiful. All right. That wraps up this episode. See you all next week. Mm-hmm.